Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have lots to update you on by way of phone hacking litigation, including a royal appearance. But I want to start with the Australian judgment in the defamation trial brought by Ben Robert Smith. Australia's most decorated living soldier, Ben Robert Smith, has lost his defamation case against three newspapers that accused him of war crimes in Afghanistan. The trial was the first time a court has assessed accusations of war crimes by Australian forces. The Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and The Canberra Times were sued over articles alleging Robert Smith killed unarmed prisoners. Robert Smith argued five of the killings reported by the newspapers had occurred legally during combat and the sixth did not happen at all. On the 1st of June 2023, Mr Justice Anthony Basanko found four of the six murder allegations were substantially true. These included a handcuffed farmer that the soldier had kicked off a cliff, a captured Taliban fighter who was shot at least 10 times in the back before his prosthetic leg was taken as a trophy and later used by troops as a drinking vessel, two and two murders which were ordered or agreed by Robert Smith to initiate a blood rookie soldier. This defamation case lasted 110 days and was rumoured to have cost uh, upwards of 25 million Australian dollars. Evidence was heard from over 40 witnesses, including Afghan villagers, a government minister and a string of current and former SAS soldiers. So obviously this is a very unique use of defamation law as it's essentially put a country's war efforts on trial. I guess be a good place to start is just with your thoughts on the judgment itself and and the use of defamation law in this way. Well, I think it's quite remarkable that this case can be seen uh, as forming part of a pattern that we've seen relatively recently in the way defamation law has been used in uh, common law countries. So countries where the approach to the tort of defamation is broadly aligned with the English approach. Um, Because leaving aside the the unique seriousness of this particular set of allegations for a moment, what we have seen in the last few years is a preponderance of well-known public figures who have actually done the things that they've been accused of bringing defamation claims anyway, which they are then losing on the uh, defense of truth. The defense of truth is was once known as the nuclear defense. It was the one which you didn't press that button because it was extremely difficult as a defendant to prove substantial truth of the allegations in most defamation cases, not least because if there was evidence of substantial truth, normally claimants wouldn't bring the claim in the first place. Um, but we saw with the Wagatha Christie uh, incident, we saw Rebecca Vardy bringing a claim despite having done the thing that she'd been uh, uh, accused of. We saw Johnny Depp bringing his liable claim, uh, the one he brought in the English courts, that is, um, in respect of allegations that he was a wife beater and the judge accepting a defense of truth. Now we have uh, a decorated war hero who is alleged also to be a war criminal bringing a claim, which, as you said, Colette, an enormously expensive claim, um, 
and he's shown uh, in the eye, as far as the judge is concerned, on balance of probabilities, to be a war criminal and to have committed some absolutely heinous war crimes. Um, and I just think that that is worth uh, worth making note of. The, the defense of truth is having more of a heyday now than I've seen it have at any point in the last 20 years. Um, just in the last, what's that, two or three years, it seems to be in the headlines an awful lot, which means that these cases are becoming more and more extreme in their fact patterns um, because they are outrageous allegations which are either, you know, they didn't do it at all or actually they they did do it. Um, this is a remarkable turn. 20 years ago, we were talking about the need for a public interest defense because defense of truth was so prohibitively difficult for media defendants to succeed with. Um, there's been very little use of public interest defense, either the Reynolds one or the statutory one, section four under the 2013 act in recent times compared to, it seems, this defense of truth. What do you think, Paul? Well, I think it raises interesting questions about what we mean by truth. Uh, if I can be slightly philosophical for this for a moment, because of course there's a there's a disconnect here between the common understanding of truth as something absolute, i.e., it did happen, and the judicial standard of truth, uh, which, ha- as we know, has two applications. In the criminal court, it means uh, beyond all reasonable doubt it happened, and in the civil uh, section, means more likely than not it happened, or on the balance of probability it, it happened. Now, that's three different versions of truth that are all operating in the public sphere. So I can understand why defamation claimants bring claims because either they are they have bad intentions and think, well, you'll never prove it. Uh, so they make these, these claims and they can stomp and scream in, in public. And then it becomes a kind of game of chicken. Are you actually, you, the defendant, going to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds to go to court to stand up and present your evidence, which is the nuclear option you were talking about there, Tom? Um, Or, in fact, they didn't do it, and they are right that they didn't do it, but um, because in in a sense of absolute truth, they didn't do it without appreciating this judicial standard or this differential judicial standard. Uh, which is um, not that they did definitely do it, but that it seems beyond all reasonable doubt they did do it, or um, more likely than not that they did it. And O.J. Simpson, of course, is an example of this, because on a criminal standard, a trial, uh, a jury of his peers found that he didn't do it beyond all reasonable doubt. Um, But a civil jury found that he did do it because of that gap that gap between more likely than not uh, and anything else. And so there's something, I think, from a philosophical perspective, there's something very interesting now about what it means to say that he did commit these heinous acts. Because legally speaking, we now can say he did commit these heinous acts. But that still doesn't mean that he did. That question around the burden of proof, I think, raises also another question around how these civil proceedings could affect any potential war crime proceedings which would be held in a criminal court? Well, the same evidence will be adduced um, uh, if this goes to 
a criminal trial for war crimes. The same evidence will be adduced. And the question for uh, the adjudicative panel, which will probably just be a judicial panel, um, will be it's the one that you, you can infer from Paul's analysis. Um, does this meet the higher standard of proof, the criminal standard of proof? Does the evidence support a finding on uh, beyond reasonable doubt that these war crimes were committed um, as opposed to simply on balance of probabilities? How do you protect any future any potential future criminal proceedings, given we now have a over 700-page judgment saying that he did do it, what would be the safeguards in place to make sure that that, that trial was in the future was fair? Well, that that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, I, I don't know about the standards of uh, fair trial, preserving the fair trial in Australia, so I can't speak specifically to that context. But in the UK, this, this would be a massive problem, because, um, of course, if he was arrested uh, for this, the subjudice period uh, begins and, and the newspapers have to be careful. Um, but in circumstances where you've got a civil trial, and again, this disconnect between a common understanding of he did it and a, a judicial understanding of he did it, um, you've got a serious question here about jury prejudice and whether any amount of judicial instruction that they are to disregard everything that they've ever known about this man and judge him only on uh, his um, merits, uh, the merits of the case, become a problem. Now, in a in a, a context where it's judges only, of course, that problem might not arise because we can trust judges to understand the difference between the judicial standard and the common standard of truth, and to uh, cast evidence over, uh, or cast our eye over the evidence in a neutral way. But it does present problems, I think, for a judicial inquiry on the criminal standard, because, of course, there's a pressure, whether ju judges feel it or not, there is a pressure there to find that he was guilty, um, because the civil court has already decided that he did do this thing. So you can see that this creates uh, very difficult political tensions um, of, a, of a sort of overt and covert kind. I would echo Paul's concerns about how you put this before a jury, if that ever became necessary. And normally, if you have allegations of a criminal nature, you would deal with those first and then have a civil case that relies upon whatever the outcome of the criminal case is. If there's a conviction, then in civil court, you can use um, the, that conviction um, to prove essentially the case on balance of probabilities because you say it's already been proved to the higher standard. So having it the other way around is procedurally unusual. Um, I would have thought that the the solution here would be, given the nature of the alleged crimes, to have them dealt with not by the domestic Australian courts, but by international tribunal. Um, Australia is a member of the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court, A, is based in The Hague, so a nice long way from uh, the tainted jury pool in Australia. And B, most importantly, doesn't involve juries. It's a judicial panel only. Um, and that is usually the safeguard against um, against possible um, 
prejudice on the part of juries. Where possible, you would have the case tried by only a judicial panel because judges are, uh, we are told, better able than juries to disregard what they've read in the press. Now, obviously, you know, in in, a, in, in England, with relatively low-level criminal offences, right up to high-level criminal offences, the right to jury trial is generally the most important thing, so that sticks around. Um, you can't just have judges doing things because you decide to. But there have been circumstances where we've had judge-only trials. We had them in terrorism cases in Northern Ireland for quite a long time. And um, there, there have been some in, uh, sensitive counterterrorism trials on the mainland under the new Labour administration. Um, so you know, there are circumstances where that can happen. One of the circumstances in which it does happen is in war crimes trials um, in, in The Hague. Where you don't use a jury, you use specialist judges. So that, that would be what I would speculate might happen. Um, but there are a whole enormous number of legal hurdles that need to be cleared. Um, and I'm sure a war crimes law expert would uh, tell us exactly what they are um, before a trial could commence uh, at the ICC. So we're a long way away from that happening, if indeed it ever does. Well, while we're moving around the world, let's come back to Britain and cover the phone hacking cases that have been happening over the last couple of weeks. This week saw Prince Harry take the stand in his claim alongside over 100 other claimants against the Mirror Group newspapers, making him the first royal to appear in a witness box since the 1890s. The claimants are accusing the tabloid of widespread unlawful activities between 1991 and 2011. They say the media groups, journalists or private investigators commissioned by them carried out phone hacking on an industrial scale and obtained private details by deception, and that the senior editors and executives knew of this deception. There's been a lot of coverage in the press of this trial this week, um, obviously because Prince Harry's taken the stands. I'm sure listeners will know that this trial has actually been ongoing since the start of May and is due to continue for another couple of weeks. So there's a limit to how much we can really discuss here while you know evidence is still being presented. However, I want to get your thoughts on on Harry's testimony itself. Um, it struck me that this this his testimony was heavily reliant on inference. It, most of his argument is essentially that the mirror's done this before, and therefore they must have done it again in in these instances. Is the circumstantial evidence that he's presenting here likely to be persuasive? Well, that again, that's the million dollar question that we that through our crystal ball we we don't know because it it all depends on fan court and what he makes of the evidence and how it compares to the other evidence. I mean, what we can say is that fan court as an experienced judge, as all judges are uh, in this in this field, uh, will make a finding on this. You know, he can't throw his hands up and say, well, I don't know whether this happened. Um, so he, he does have to, um, he does have to reach a decision on whether he thinks this is per- persuasive or not. And of course, the defendants are making a big deal out of the quality of the evidence, whether there is no evidence or not. Um, the the other problem, of course, that that we have here is that in the in the um, certainly in the popular understanding of what's going on in this trial, a lot has been made of evidence, and we've already talked about the difference in standards between balance of probabilities and beyond all reasonable doubt. 
Now, um, if I can just name drop for a moment, I was on I was on BBC Radio Ulster uh, early in the week, and I had the pleasure of talking to uh, Neil Wallace, who's a former deputy editor uh, of the Mirror and the former editor of the News of the World. His point seemed to be just the same. I mean, apart from trying to denigrate Harry even further than than the newspaper has already had, and repeating those tropes about how Harry is thick and how. Uh, this uh, litigation's a car crash for Harry. He did keep saying, "Well, there's no hard evidence," and he kept trying to he kept trying to portray the this claim as um, one inconsequential and two a simple vanity vanity project, uh, as if this is just Harry uh, being selfish and trying to dig up the past and dishonor his mother's memory and blah blah blah. Um. And all he could say constantly was, there's no hard evidence, there's no hard evidence. Now, that to me betrayed his misunderstanding about how the law works, because the law is often confronted with a situation in which there is no hard evidence, especially in a civil trial. It's about what constitutes hard evidence. The way he was talking, it was almost as if he wanted uh, Harry to walk into the court holding the actual phone that was used or holding the actual computer, you know, carrying the smoking gun, the literal smoking gun. That's just not the way that the law works. Uh, yeah, Paul's absolutely right. Um, it is as much about the shape of the evidential gap as it is about the evidence that is presented. Because if the evidential gap takes on a suspicious-looking shape, and we've heard this uh, week in some of the coverage that uh, Harry's counsel, David Sherborne, is essentially making this argument to the court um, that where there is missing evidence, and the reason it is missing is that the defendant has let it go missing, um, then it needs to be uh, treated as if the evidence would have been incriminating. Um, and that this is this is the way that the case is going to be proven. Um, the other, a couple of points to make on Harry's testimony, because you know, obviously, all we've seen of it are the kind of live feed tweets that have been coming out of journalists in the court who are tweeting updates on, oh, he said this, he said that, um, and you know, occasionally we get, uh, well, we've had a bit on Sky News, this slightly bizarre reenactment um, that's been going on, on a nightly basis where an actor's been reading out what Harry has said. Um, but we haven't heard the whole unredacted thing. You know, it hasn't been broadcast live to the nation. So we haven't heard absolutely everything that's been said. I, I would be very surprised if Harry's evidence comprises the majority, uh, certainly not all of, the evidence that's being brought to bear in this case um in a civil case you'd start with the claimant's testimony to set the scene this is what i think happened this is how it made me feel this is the impact that it has on me and then after that you bring in the experts you bring in whatever hard evidence you have um so i think that where things get interesting in this litigation is actually after Harry has uh, left the witness box and 
return to the United States, because that's when you will get the more technical evidence, the more forensic evidence, where you don't just have the uh, the emotive testimony of the claimant themselves. And that's where you can start to judge, well, actually, how much evidence is there? Um, you know, if it's the case that you know, Harry's legal team have to rest their case on Friday, well, then maybe there wasn't a lot. But if they have enough evidence to make this case go on for quite a while whilst they, they draw that evidence out, that starts to suggest that there is evidence. So we will see in the coming days um, how much there is. And the second point I want to make about Harry, and I'll just make really quickly, it's a purely sort of observational point. A lot of the media commentary around this case, and there has been a frenzy around this particular case, now that Harry's in the witness box, has been very pejorative of Harry. It seems that every chance, whether it's the papers or even the broadcast news coverage, every chance to try and cast doubt on, oh, is this really hard evidence? Oh, is Harry saying this? Oh, was Harry correct on that? He had a tough day in the witness box today. He started looking happy, but then he started tripping over his words or he started to crumble under pressure and he confused his... No other witness that I can think of has ever been subjected to this degree of um, almost minute-by-minute deeply critical commentary on the evidence that they're giving. Um, Now, we, as responsible members of the public, control whatever inference we might from uh, uh, the rationale that might be behind trying to denigrate uh, Harry the Witness. But I suspect that the kinds of things that, that Paul's describing from Neil Wallace, the constant, there is no hard evidence, there is no hard evidence, that's not something that the media is saying for the judge, the actual decision maker, who won't be paying a blind bit of attention. That's for the court of public opinion. That's a precursor to a finding of liability and then turning around and going, well, those tricksy judges and courts and those enemies of the people may have said that uh, uh, Harry deserved uh, to win this case, but we know better. There was no hard evidence. Didn't you hear us telling you there was no hard evidence? And there never is. And it's all very... Well, it reminds me of a certain figure from across the Atlantic, who I read this morning had been charged with a whole variety of other offences, but uh, that's a totally different story. So I want to I want to pick up on that point because I think this is really important. Listener, notice the disconnect in the two conversations that we just had when we were talking about Ben Roberts and we were talking about defamation generally. We're saying that you can you can defend successfully a defamation claim without hard evidence, yeah, without proving beyond all reasonable doubt that a person did it, and this is the nature of the public discourse that we have, and this is the nature of the way that the law protects the public discourse. Newspapers make allegations against people every single day, and they do so without hard evidence or at least the kind of hard evidence that Neil Wallace is talking about. And that doesn't stop them. And it doesn't stop courts protecting them in those circumstances. So they're applying a standard that they don't apply to themselves. Now, we might say, well, that's because they're a public watchdog. And that's absolutely right. We can come out with that trope if we want to. They're a public watchdog. They're a public watchdog. There's nothing in law that makes them act as a public watchdog, number one. But number two, 
when they do act as a public watchdog, they serve a very important service. They serve a very important role in our society in holding the powerful to account. Now, the question that this litigation has to bring to everybody's mind is this. What happens when the press themselves are the powerful entity that is abusing that power? Who brings them to account? And this is the issue with this kind of litigation. I think this is why it's so important. I think, in a way, Harry has won, whether he wins or not, because he should be forcing us all to think about that. If there was a sniff of scandal that in any other industry, the banking industry, the NHS, there was unlawful activity happening on an industrial scale, that would be all over the newspapers every single day. Just look what's happened to Philip Schofield. I don't even know what Philip Schofield is accused of. I can't remember anymore. But he has been put under an intense public scrutiny over the past few weeks over wrongdoing. Whether it's illegal wrongdoing or immoral wrongdoing, I'm not sure. Now, that's the kind of scrutiny that the press will bring to bear on those that they think deserve it. And they themselves choose who those targets are, who those victims are. The right-wing press is quite happy to give Michael Gove an easy ride, or Boris Johnson, or anybody else in the political spectrum that they like. So now the question arises about what, what do we do about this? What do we do about circumstances where the press themselves are abusing power? Now, you might think, well, why should we care? Why should we care? Because this only affects privileged individuals. It only affects Harry and people like Harry who are rich and can go to court. But otherwise, they lead this perfectly uh, lovely life uh, that's very privileged. Actually, regular listeners to this podcast will know, because I say it all the time, the people who are affected by newspapers on a daily basis are often, more often than not, people you've never heard of. You don't know who they are because they come to your attention because of something tragic that's happened in their lives. They've lost a loved one or they've been involved in some kind of, God forbid, terrorist activity. And they are the ones that find themselves under the media spotlight at the worst possible moment in their life. Now, what do they do? They can't go to court. They can't go to court because they can't afford to go to court. They can't afford to go to court on the basis of defamation or misuse of private information or anything like that because it's too expensive. What they can do instead is to complain either to the newspaper itself or to its regulator, who more often than not is Ipso. But Ipso is hopeless. It's a trade complaint handling service. It's basically a post box. You send your complaint to them, they pass it on. They receive a response from the newspaper, they pass it back. Ipso receives tens of thousands of complaints every single year. Every single year. That's not just from rich and famous people. It's from people you've never heard of. And they're not getting the redress that they deserve and they're not getting the attention that they deserve. So when Harry complains about press intrusion and you are told this doesn't happen anymore, that is a lie. That is a demonstrable lie. It is happening. It's happening every single day. And Ipso is 
insufficiently powerful to do anything about it. And that's why we need to reopen the debate in this country about meaningful press regulation. On that note, then, it's worth mentioning the other phone hacking litigation brought by a fellow member of you, Paul, at Hacked Off, Hugh Grants, which has just been uh, uh, approved to go towards full trial. Grant is bringing a legal action alleging that he was targeted by journalists and private investigators against newsgroup newspapers, who were the publishers of The Sun, having previously settled a claim with the publisher in 2012 relating to the news of the world. NGN denies any unlawful activity took place at The Sun and brought a bid to have Grant's claim thrown out in a hearing last month, arguing that it was too late for him to file the claim. On the 2nd of June, Mr Justice Fancourt decided Grant's claim could proceed to trial, minus any phone hacking allegations. So we're not actually going to see that aspect of the claim go to a full hearing. Paul, do you want to start with any comments as to the decision to to, um, strike out the phone hacking aspect of this? Yeah, so um, I think it's important. Two two things are important here. One, to just sort of add a bit of flexibility to that term hacking, because uh, we've started to see in the the public discourse now, hacking is used in its rather general sense. It doesn't just mean the literal hacking into a voicemail uh, of the sort that uh, was happening at the news of the world. It's being used in a in a sort of more flexible way to include any kind of illegal obtaining of information. And increasingly, the uh, narrative, particularly in, in the litigation, is about the use of private investigators uh, to obtain information about a person through things like blagging, et cetera, et cetera. So for the listener, you might see um, excitement in the press that um, uh, Hugh Grant's uh, phone hacking claim has been struck out, uh, which in a technical sense is true. But you might also see counter narratives, particularly in the left leaning uh, sections that say Hugh Grant's phone hacking claim continues, which, of course, in this broader sense is true because there are aspects of blagging uh that the, the part of the, the, the claim that, that will be heard. Um, I think the other thing to, to just note as well with this litigation is that, um, again, it's slightly confusing because this is another claim against the Mirror Group newspaper. Uh, this time the title is uh, The Sun uh, and uh, not The Mirror. Now we can say that The Mirror engaged in illegal activities of a hacking type. Uh, In fact, we can say that they engaged in phone hacking because of the Galati decision. The Galati decision is one in which they admitted liability. It was just a question of quantum. So we know that phone hacking activity took place at the News of the World, and we know now that it took place at The Mirror. What we can't say is that The Sun conducted phone hacking activity because there's no uh, admission of liability on that point. But we can say that the Sun has had hundreds of claims against it uh, as, as part of the Mirror Group, which has had hundreds of claims against it, and that a sizable sum of money has been spent on settling these claims. So far, something in the order of £100 million has been spent settling claims. So that is something we can draw an inference from, you can draw your own inference from. But what's interesting, I think, is that when we go back to the Leveson inquiry, we were told from the industry, almost with one voice, that phone hacking didn't happen. We were told 
that uh, as an industry practice. We were told that to the extent that phone hacking did happen, it was done by a few individuals and that those individuals were essentially rogue agents. They were rogue reporters acting under their own cognizance and that the senior officials had no knowledge of this. Paul Dacre said that, the Murdochs said that, the other press owners said that, and so did senior editors as well. Now, you will hear people say, again, I refer back to the conversation I had earlier in the week with Mr. Wallace, well, we, hacking is an ancient thing, and we've held our hands up about hacking. We've said it's happened, and we're sorry. Please be clear there was no moment of culpability in the Leveson inquiry. There was no moment in which publishers acknowledged this kind of wrongdoing was happening and that they were sorry for it. There was no contrition. All that happened at Leveson was a series of scapegoating. So let's not rewrite history. There has been no moment in which the industry as a whole accepted that it did wrong. It has played the card of a victim that it was being victimised for the actions of a tiny minority. We are now starting to learn that that's not the truth, that there was more widespread phone hacking than has been officially admitted. And that, again, becomes important when we think about the recommendations Leveson made, because the politicians in Parliament at the time were able to use this narrative to good effect, to say, well, these were just the actions of a minority. That doesn't seem to be the case. So the other narrative, of course, is that this is old news. It's not old news. Even if this activity was taking place only 10 years ago or 15 years ago, that hasn't been acknowledged in a public forum or a public inquiry. That needs to happen. We need to reopen this question. All right, I think that's a nice place to finish up. Uh, before we go, uh, can I just plug uh, an article that uh, I wrote and has just published? Uh, listeners, if you've been listening for most of the last year or so, uh, every so often you'll have heard uh, my disquiet about the implications of the uh, Riley and Murray decision and defamation uh, and the impact on meaning, um, which I've now crystallised into a... 12,000-odd word hardcore legal analysis, um, an, an article that's just published in the Journal of Media Law, uh, the most recent edition. It's published online, and uh, thanks to the generosity of uh, City University of London, it is available open access. So if you are a, a, a really hardcore listener uh, and you, uh, you can't get enough um, of media law, you can't wait for the next podcast, you want more and more and more, then you can... Uh, take a look at that. You can find it on the uh, Journal of Media Law's website, um, or you can also find it on my university profile website, um, where there's a, a link to it under my publications tab. Um, so look up Tom Bennett, City University of London um, Law School, and you'll find that. So yes, the article's called Interpretation is Opinion. Um, but there may be some practitioners out there who are interested uh, in the way that I try to make that argument in a way that is not just normative, but um, which has some uh, detailed legal analysis in it as well. But, but please, if you are that person who can't get enough of the podcast uh, and media law, do seek professional help. Absolutely. We're worried about you. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. 
as ever follow us on twitter at media law podcast and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come thanks very much bye